Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Um, Good morning, Apostles. It's really good to be here today. Um, I've gotten to meet a number of you over the last few months as I've visited for the Diocesan Holy Spirit Weekend, or as I've now filled in a few times for David. And um, my name is John Tucker. I'm based at Hope Point Anglican in the Woodlands, um, but I serve primarily in our diocese as both communications director and as canon for ministry formation and leadership development. Uh, That's a mouthful, but it's a fancy way of saying I help facilitate, coach, and cheerlead those discerning ordination um, and help senior pastors think through and build resources for leadership development. And so I've gotten to work quite a bit with David and Eric and now Britt and Derek um, here at Apostles. And most importantly, though, it's just a joy to be here this morning to worship with you and now to bring God's word this morning. Um, For those who might be new today or maybe as a refresher, as a church, Apostles, we've been going through a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And this series is designed to help us remember that the Apostles community, this community, first and foremost exists to be a community following Jesus in our city. Apostles believes, we believe that we are made to live with God for the glory of God. And we believe that life comes through learning to be with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing the kinds of things Jesus did and we want others to experience in this life. So David has asked us in 2023 to ask the question, what would a community that was following Jesus look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus together in the mess of everyday life? So, one of the things that Matthew's gospel emphasizes over the other gospels is this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That isn't to say that this idea doesn't exist in the other gospels or places in scripture. It's just Matthew in many ways builds his gospel around this idea. And even that idea or intentional choice of kingdom emphasizes a few realities for us. Kingdoms have kings. And Jesus himself makes clear that the Trinitarian Godhead rules this kingdom of heaven. We do not. And neither do the powers of the world. God alone rules the entire created order. But Matthew, through the words of Jesus, also emphasizes that this kingdom is not far away. It doesn't exist in a faraway place that has no relevance to us or our present. No, Jesus emphasizes time and time again, this kingdom is here. This kingdom of heaven is a process, a course of events, in which God is king, and therefore in which God himself is manifesting himself to the world of humanity. So when we talk about what it means to follow God in a messy world, we must always start with this in mind, that the kingdom of God is here and God is king. So I don't know about you, but I grew up in churches where heaven was actually just some faraway place that I waited for until I died. 
And come to find out, this idea actually kind of cheapens the gospel. Christianity is this mysterious mixture of the now and not yet. Yes, Jesus will eventually come again and make all things right. But the whole point of the cross and resurrection is that his kingdom is currently being established. The king has begun his reign. And it's our job to prepare the kingdom for his return. This is some of the profound beauty of the Christian life, of the life of the nation of Israel, of the church. God calls us, a people, back to himself, not for our own benefit, but that we get to showcase to the world the goodness and beauty of God, to show the world what life should look like. And yes, we do this out of obedience, but we do it primarily out of love, because kingdom life is good and God is better. It's better than anything we can hope for or imagine, and it's right. The kingdom of God is actually the world rightly ordered. We live in that messy world, a world of disorder, but the kingdom of God is a rightly ordered world. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showcasing for the people of God a proper ordering of his world about what life in the kingdom actually means. And I know you've probably talked about a lot of this, but as we open our gospel lesson today, um, I want us to look at a couple of questions together, okay? We're going to look at four questions. What does this text say about the world? What does this text say about God? What does the text say about us and the church in light of what it says about God? And therefore, what does the kingdom of God showcase to a world in need of restoration and resurrection? Okay, these are the four questions we're going to unpack together. So open up your Bibles to Matthew 5, 38 through 48. There's some in your seats. I know we also live in a modern world, so some of you are pulling out your phones. That's fine, too. We're going to be in Matthew 5, starting in 38. And we're going to be a bit interactive for the rest of the sermon, okay? So I want to hear some answers and talking here. Get ready. Matthew 5, 38 through 48. Let's look at this text together. And let's ask question number one. What does this text say about the world? Someone answer for me using the scriptures in front of us. What does it say about the world? Yes, okay. So this is a place where we get retribution on one another. We've been ruptured by evil. Evil, great. Big picture. The world is evil. Right, this is a place where we get struck in the face, where people sue and steal from you, where we are forced coercively into action, where people beg, where people are persecuted, where we have enemies. That's a lot. Okay, even the most ardent pagan, atheist, agnostic, etc., acknowledges the world is broken and full of evil. It's kind of a universal reality. It was true in the time of Jesus, it was true before him, and it will remain true until the end of time when Jesus restores all things. Okay, so if we're going to unpack what the world is like, I want us to very quickly back up a little bit to Genesis 1 and 2. 
if we want to understand what rightly ordered life is if the world is broken, then we have to first understand how the world was originally designed. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a world where humanity is created in the image of God, bears the image of God. What we have to take away from this and apply to our text today is that being made in the image of God means that all of humanity bears inherent worth and dignity. Every person on earth, no matter how good or how bad they are, bears the image of God. Created intimately by him, created for him, created to reflect him. And sin enters the world in Genesis 3. But the scriptures of the Old and New Testament understand sin through a very specific lens. Sin is either understanding, either, sorry, sin is either not understanding that God alone is on the throne of the world and all things come from him, or sin is not treating ourselves and each other as image bearers. That's actually how the scriptures define sin, when we do not treat ourselves or each other as people who bear the image of God. Every one of the Ten Commandments, every one of the Levitical laws, we heard some of those this morning, they fall under these two categories. This is why the summary of the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and love others as you love yourself. Jesus says on these two things depend all the law and the prophets. When that doesn't happen, we see a broken world. Okay, so what does this text say about the world? The world is broken, evil, it's a mess, and we do not treat each other as image bearers of God. Question number two, what does this passage say about God? Look at verse 45 and 48. What does this text say about God? God is perfect. Jesus himself in this passage says, I am perfect. It also tells us that God creates all of his creation the same, good or evil. All of humanity is leveled in the presence of a divine God. And going back to that word perfect, God is righteous and holy. Okay, God treats all humanity the same. But we created and desired a system in which we wield the tools of death and all its friends to trample over each other until we reach the top. We're not very good at loving our neighbors as ourselves. We create and live into systems where we or those around us get to determine what is right and best, where we seek to push ourselves up and others down, instead of realizing that we all bear that worth and dignity because we're made in God's image. Okay. And God, though, he treats all of his sons and daughters the same. He rains down upon the good and the evil, right? So number three, what does this mean for us, for the church? Jesus in this passage says, be perfect as I am perfect. I want us to understand this is not simply about rule-keeping, when Jesus says, be perfect as I am, he's actually talking about living within a proper order, within God's proper design. The Old Testament describes a life of doing righteousness, doing justice. That may seem like a weird turn of phrase, doing righteousness, doing justice. 
what might come to mind is being a good person. But the biblical word for righteousness is a bit more specific than that. It's an ethical standard that refers to the right relationship between people. It's about treating others as image bearers of God with the God-given dignity they deserve. And so that's why even this morning when we hear Levitical laws, the entire legal process set up in Israel was designed to showcase that living into God's kingdom, living into his rightly ordered world, is to treat everyone with dignity and respect. So if we, the church, and the people of God are to carry God's image, if we are made in his image, then we are to become like God, reflecting his image back into the world. So this is why righteousness is to treat others as image bearers, because God treats them that way. When Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect, he's not actually setting an impossible ideal. Yes, he's the only one who is perfect, because he's both God and man. But what he's telling us is, radiate my perfection by living into this summary of the law. Take seriously loving your neighbor better than even you love yourself. He says, you want to follow me? You want to be like me? Treat every person you encounter with the God-given respect and dignity they deserve. So question four, what does the kingdom of God showcase to a world in need of restoration and resurrection? If righteousness or reflecting God is all about treating people as image bearers, if life in the kingdom is about doing righteousness and doing justice, what does that showcase to a world in need? I know the word justice has a variety of modern and cultural connotations, okay? Don't squirm in your seat just yet. I want us to talk and look at biblical justice because it's tied to this same idea. The Hebrew word for justice sometimes refers to retributive justice. Like if I harm someone, I then pay the consequences, right? It's what Jesus talks about actually here in Matthew 5 when he said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is retributive justice. If you take from me, we're made even by me taking the same thing back from you. If you perform harm on me, we are made even by me harming you equally back. In some ways, this feels kind of right. If someone hits me in the face, I get to pop them back. And sometimes the Levitical law did operate this way, but it usually only operates in retributive justice to protect the vulnerable. Meaning if you take advantage of the vulnerable, they deserve the same or more in return in order to be brought back into right relation with you. But most often in the Bible, justice and righteousness refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually living out the reality that we all bear God's image and therefore we are all equal before God. Sometimes this restorative justice means seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. And this isn't just charity. It means taking steps to advocate for them, changing structures around you, the world around us, to actively prevent injustice. Restorative justice is different. It, mean, it means treating the one who harms us as equal. They are equally worthy of respect and honor. They, reserve, they deserve that dignity even when they do harm. And this flows from, again, a truth about God. 
Flip very quickly to Matthew 18, 21 through 35. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Again, located in Matthew's gospel, talking about Christian life in the kingdom of God. This parable is about a man who has forgiven a large debt. In fact, his debt is equivalent to the amount of multiple billions of dollars. Something that he is actually incapable of digging himself out of. But his debt is forgiven. Yet this man turns around and punishes a servant who owes him a monthly wage. We can feel the injustice there, right? Billions of dollars, a monthly wage. Jesus here is pointing out the foolishness of this. If you are forgiven an unforgivable debt, you should live out forgiveness. But Jesus makes clear in this parable that we are not the man who owed little. We're the servant who was forgiven much and refuses to forgive the small amount. We are the unforgiving servant. We're called to treat our enemies with dignity and respect because Jesus died on a cross for us. We didn't deserve saving. I don't know about you, but I I know my own heart. I'm kind of despicable. I often am not worthy of forgiveness, but Jesus gives it to me anyway. And so I am called to love my enemies. Now, I know apostles well enough to know this is a room of really intelligent people. And some of you are saying, okay, I get Jesus is telling us to love our enemies because he loved us first but that can't really be a full embodiment of justice. There's a hole here. What, what, what's just about a world where my enemies or people of evil run around doing harm and I simply forgive them? Is that really just? And to you I say, I agree. That isn't justice in its fullness. Restorative justice is much more than treating our enemies as people worthy of love. It simply starts there. Restorative justice, which is the work of the kingdom, involves way more than that. It means taking steps to actually shape the world into the reality that we are all equal. So let's dig back into Matthew 5 again. N.T. Wright, an Anglican theologian and writer, says this about our gospel lesson. He says, Jesus offers a new sort of justice, a creative, healing, restorative justice. The old justice of the Bible, an eye for an eye, was created to keep revenge from running away with itself. Better to swap our teeth than an escalating feud between us where we do more harm to the other. Right, do we see how that makes sense? If you knock my tooth out, I knock yours out, rather than cutting off your hand or your arm, which then is going to have you, right, it just... That's a world that builds upon wrongdoing. Eye for an eye was designed to curb that. But Jesus goes one step further here. He says, better to have no vengeance at all, and yet live into a creative way forward in which both parties are actually made equal in the sight of God. This new way reflects the astonishingly patient love of God himself one who wants his people to shine light into the world so that all will experience his love. Jesus offers three examples about this new way of justice. To be struck on the right cheek almost certainly meant receiving a backhand. Okay, to showcase this, if I'm standing face-to-face with Eric (laughs) 
And I am right-handed, which is the majority of the people in the world, and it's especially in Jesus' time. What is the only way I can hit his right cheek? Backhand. Right? We see that? Well, backhand is the insult of insults. It's actually a far greater insult than hitting him in the first place. It means I'm not just hitting him, but demeaning him. You're not only worth slapping, you're not even worth my front hand. So Jesus' answer to this insult is not to hit the person back and keep this evil in circulation. He says, offer the other cheek. Jesus is not saying, hey, submit yourself to more humiliation and pain. No, Jesus is saying, make your posture now one of your left cheek, which is to say, hit me if you like, but you make sure you do it as my equal. Jesus uses another example. He says, suppose you're in a court of law where a powerful enemy is suing you, and the enemy has gone so far as to ask for the shirt off of your back. Jesus says, you probably can't win here, so offer him your cloak as well. Now, this is a world where most people only owned two garments, a cloak and a shirt. So Jesus is saying, shame him in front of all for making you naked. Give him your cloak and show the court that justice doesn't actually mean your nakedness, but it means your restoration. Jesus says, if the rich and powerful wish to reduce you to a point of shame, turn their shame around by proving that they've made you naked, and that you are not worthy of that nakedness. They've gone beyond justice. The third example Jesus uses is that of walking a mile. Now, Jesus and Israel at this time is under Roman occupation. Roman soldiers during this time period had the right to force civilians to carry their equipment for one mile. Now, this was designed as a measure across the empire to serve the soldiers. But, often, it was wielded cruelly by making others carry their equipment as punishment. But the Roman law was also clear that it was illegal for Roman soldiers to force this one step further than a mile. So Jesus here says, If someone makes you walk a mile, turn the tables. Don't fret, don't mourn, don't plot revenge. Copy your generous God. Go a second mile and astonish them with the reality of a different way of being human. A way which doesn't plot revenge, a way which doesn't lead to some armed resistance movement against Rome, which, by the way, is what many Jews in the kingdom thought Jesus meant when he said the kingdom is here. No, Jesus says... Do you want to win over injustice and violence? Show the soldier the intent of the law. Make him uncomfortable. Make him wonder if his officer is going to come by and see that you've walked two miles. But that extra mile isn't about revenge. It's about restoring both the servant walking and the soldier. It's about showcasing that the kingdom means to treat the soldier with dignity because now your service has forced him to treat you as an equal or face justice himself. You see that game Jesus is playing there? Because it's illegal to walk the extra mile, 
Doing so not only showcases the way of the kingdom, but forces him to elevate you to his level or face justice himself. When Jesus tells us these things, he's saying this new world of justice isn't just about loving our enemies and throwing away vengeance. It's about restoring the order of the world that all people carry worth and dignity as sons and daughters of God. Part of turning the other cheek is about reminding us that we will not be left in our places of hurt, disgrace, embarrassment, or low estate. Jesus doesn't allow us to start to see ourselves as creatures not worthy of dignity and grace. He says, no, you find your true worth in God and God alone and in relation to him. You see, restorative justice, this true form of justice is actually really good news. We will all be made equal before him. The lowly, the poor, the downtrodden will be lifted up. They won't be left to believe they are worthless. The prideful, the powerful, the evil will be brought down. They won't be left to think that they are above all others. The rain will indeed fall on the just and the unjust. Jesus is showing a new way of being human, the way we were always designed to live. And he shows us this himself. When he was mocked, he remained silent. When challenged by authorities, he told parables and stories to force people to think differently and to highlight certain truths about him. When struck, he carried the pain, yet made clear that this cruelty wasn't a form of submission, but was actually a response of dignity. And when Rome put its most vicious and cruelest tool across on his back, he bore it up a hillside and let himself die. When they nailed him to it, he prayed for them. Why? The Sermon on the Mount and loving our enemies isn't really about us. As if it was some sort of idealism or moralism. No, it's about Jesus himself. A bold, risk-taking God who will do all in his power to draw us back to him. Who will go out of his way to implement his kingdom and reign on earth. He has come that we actually get to experience life, and life abundant, not just in the future, but here and now. And he asks nothing of us that he hasn't faced himself. If this is what God is really like, someone that loves all because they bear his image, if the world is really made so that all bear equal amounts of worth and dignity, if this is the pattern that Jesus himself lives out, then Matthew invites us to a pretty strong conclusion. That in Jesus we see Emmanuel, God with us, God himself. Jesus turned the tools of evil to love. He turned spears and swords into shovels and plowshares. He healed the sick, made the blind to see, made the lame to walk. He lifts up the poor and lowly. He gives the dead life. And he makes clear to the rich rulers and to evil that he is above them also, that they are no greater than those below them. Loving your enemies is about discovering the living God in a loving, dying, and resurrecting Jesus who brings even our enemies to their knees. 
and learning to reflect that type of love to a world that needs it so badly. So this morning I want to finish with a question for us. A question to wrestle with on your own together as a church. What would apostles look like if first and foremost everyone in this community actually lived out, love your neighbor as yourself? Everyone had inherent worth and dignity. How would that then transform this neighborhood? The people we encounter at work, on the street, What if loving your enemy wasn't a simple matter of submission to cruelty and evil, but a way of reversing the world and showcasing that the evil done to me bears nothing in my relationship with God because he will raise me up. And the evil done to me is done by someone who ultimately bears God's image as well. And that the keys of the kingdom are actually in forgiveness and restoration. Do we see how this passage is actually about far more than loving our enemies? It's about changing the world. Bringing the kingdom of God here and now. And it's with this good news in mind that we get to stand together now and profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org. 